0: Okay, a quick note before you listen to this podcast. This is a very unique episode I recorded with my friend Blake Cohn. He was in Israel for a week, and he's going to share with us the pulse of the nation as he perceived it when he was there. Uh, because Blake is in Denver and I'm in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, we had to record it asynchronously. And uh, the plan was that I would record it on my device and him on his device, and then we would merge them together. But uh, alas, there was a little bit of a technical problem. So thankfully, we had a backup. We had a redundancy. We actually used the Zoom to record it as well. Uh, But the audio quality is quite poor, particularly on my end. Now, thankfully, he did most of the talking. Uh, He's going to be sharing his story. He did most of the talking, but I have to warn you, I strive in all my episodes to try to have pristine audio. This one is not an example of what we strive to do. So unfortunately, the audio is not great, but it was a very uh, powerful story that he told about what he experienced when he was there. And I think it's particularly useful for us who live in the diaspora to hear what's actually happening on the ground, what's the pulse of Israel. So I hope you enjoy it. If you can tolerate the poor audio. If you can't, I totally understand that. Maybe this is not for you, but you've been forewarned, and I apologize for that. We're still trying to figure out how to do these remote interviews in a more consistent way. This is not the first time it's happened, so forgive me for that. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalbe.com, and I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback. Here is my conversation with Blake Cohn on The Pulse of Israel. I am here with a special friend of mine, a first-time appearance on the podcast. It is great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing, my dear friend, Blake Cohn? I am excellent. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Blake is is an old friend, a listener of the podcast as well. We've become friends over the years. And he's one of my friends that I always say, I have to try to find a way to get him on the podcast. And we actually had... An aborted attempt a couple of months ago you recall we were gonna do a podcast that didn't work out but now uh, it's here uh, please God we'll uh, have a wonderful a wonderful enlightening conversation I'm looking forward to it uh, you were in Israel recently is that right yes I was I just got back actually yesterday
1: morning and I was there for uh, a week
0: yeah and, and just just we're recording this on a Wednesday. November twenty second. I think we'll probably release it maybe uh, early next week, but just to so have a sense. You went to Israel. And you went there because you wanted uh, to help, you know, to, to, to pitch in a little bit with with the effort, but also to get a sense of what's happening there on the ground. Is that right?
1: Yeah. You know, I think um, like a lot of Jews around the world in the diaspora, after seeing what happened on October seventh, it was so shocking and so horrible. And we all wanted to help in some way. You know, everybody I knew wanted to help. And I heard a statistic that American Jews sent $600 million to Israel within the first couple of weeks after October 7th. And, um, you know, it was kind of the only topic of conversation amongst myself and my friends. Um, during that time. But it's, you know, I'm I'm sure everybody can relate. There was a real sense of, of impotence, a real sense of helplessness um, at knowing that this was happening to our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel and kind of being stuck here and not being able to participate in whatever it was that they needed on the ground, fighting, you know, volunteering, or, you know, I don't, I didn't even really have an idea of what could be done. Um, and then I, I did see, um, uh, uh someone, uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, who is kind of a public uh, intellectual and founder of, of tech companies. And he himself is a podcaster and he went to Israel and did a little reporting on what he saw there um as well as a couple local people here in denver went um uh, your friend our, our friend in common rabbi gelman uh went to israel and reported a bit you know so i i knew that it was possible that people were going there and um but i still i didn't know that i was going to have an opportunity to do that and when this oppor- opportunity did come up um i i had to jump at it
0: I think it's an amazing statistic. You said $600 million. That's not an insignificant chunk of change. But also, you know, we are, we're a nation, but we're really just a large family. And I think that's one of the unique hallmarks of our people, that we really feel connected with each other. Even if we don't know someone and we don't really, maybe they come from even a different camp. They vote for a different political party or they have a different religious orientation. We still feel like, there are brothers and sisters. And they, they, to use your words. And to see them over there, you just feel like you want to be there. You want to help contribute. I know my son, I, I think I might have mentioned this on one of the podcasts, my son told me, he's like, why would I ever want to go to Israel? There's a war." I said, now is specifically the time that I want to go. What am I doing here? The, the, our brothers and sisters are there. I want to be there with them and, and contributing. And you actually, you actually went. I actually went. And, um,
1: you know, there was, you know, depending on what generation you come from, you'll either remember when Sean Penn went to Afghanistan to see it for himself or more recently when Elon Musk went to the Mexican-American border to see it for themselves. I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be the person inserting yourself into something that really you have no business inserting yourself in and you really don't have an adequate understanding of. Um, and, and I was worried about that 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 would be the case, you know, that I'd be putting myself somewhere I wasn't needed or wanted where I was in the way. Um, But what you said about our connection to one another as Jews has never been brought to such sharp a point as it was when I was in Israel in the last week. Far from feeling like I was in the way or like I was a fifth wheel, um, and I'll mention, you know, I was on a trip with, with, um, 60 or 70 other, other people. Um, I think that we felt the people that we met with soldiers, displaced people, just regular citizens that we met, they were so deeply appreciative and grateful and it gave them such strength that we were there and had come there during this time, um, um, that was, you know, the, the most moving part of it, really, and really brought home the realization that we are one family. And this is how we have survived
0: 2000 years of, of exile. And, and it is what gives us. You get a sense, Blake, that that feeling of camaraderie and kinship and brotherhood that you felt from the from the locals there. Did you feel like they had it amongst each other? Because, as we know, you know, Israel, the last couple of months before this terrible event, it was it was riven with with uh, a fracturing, a schism, a, a fight, really the likes of which we haven't seen in a very long time. And of course, there's you know political uh, uh, factors in it, and this whole judicial debate. But all these protests and Israel in itself is is a very unusual marriage of so many different types of Jews. Um, in the sense, I'm getting, but I want to hear from you because you were there. And you got, you know, a much closer appreciation. Do you feel like some yeah. of those rifts are are mending? Yes. Um,
1: you know, it really is remarkable because I, I, I followed the judicial uh, reform protests and, and movement pretty closely. And I was very worried. You know, and I, I, I tried to convince myself that it was all going to be OK, that, you know, in the end, there would be some compromise made. And that was the only way for, you know, BB to continue his career was to find a way to make a compromise. But I, I was still pretty worried about it. Um, And uh, it, it's just fascinating that on October 6th, the day before the massacres, you know, It felt like the country was coming apart at the seams. And I will say that there is a range of feelings about how this is going to play out when the war is over. But by and large, and especially amongst the troops, there is a feeling that those disagreements will be far less upfront than they were in the past. We spoke to a couple soldiers at one of the um, bases we went to, and um, one of the guys was pretty far left, the other was pretty far right. These are, you know, buddies and fighting in the same unit, and they said that in the days that they have been um, working together as a fighting unit and, and just talking constantly, they realized that their differences of opinion were, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 percent. And that it was the 80 to 90 percent that they agreed on. And so I think that because the fighting force is so large, you know, I think there are 350,000 reservists. And plus the regular army, which is I am not exactly sure. hundred, hundred fifty thousand. You know, you've got 450,000 soldiers who are together, you know, in these know, under duress, you know, in, in in these very difficult conditions with literally life and death stakes. And I think that they are realizing
0: that they're much closer together than 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 they thought.
1: Um, and they say
0: that the 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 IDF is somewhat of a melting pot where it takes the different uh, factions of the community and kind of forges them into into one kind of israeli ethos you know in one unified culture and the, the real the real battle is over what that culture is all about and i wonder if that's maybe evolving now uh over the course of this war as a lot of the flawed concepts uh that dominated a lot of the you know the orthodoxy not in the religious sense but in the kind of the 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 geopolitical and regional sense, a lot of that really went up in flames uh, over the course of uh, you know October seventh and what we learned uh, subsequently.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a melting pot. Um, you know the uh, the range of people I met in uniform, from Colel guys who barely spoke English and uh, to guys in the high tech sector to uh you know people on the left people on the right people who lived in these religious communities in the west bank people who lived in tel aviv i mean it really throws you together in the most intense way and uh and like i said i think they're realizing that their differences are smaller than their similarities now that said there there is and we'll say that at the towards the end of my trip i, I spent um some time in tel aviv and there is a somewhat of a Jerusalem-Tel Aviv divide, if you will. Um, the Tel Avivians uh, tend to be a little bit more liberal, a little bit more secular, a little bit more focused on the political implications of what's happening. Um, they don't really take a biblical view of it as much. And I think that they're maybe a little more skeptical as to whether the unity uh, the newfound unity can survive the end of the war or to what degree it will survive the end of the war but like i said you know a lot of this th- those are the people who are in tel aviv not not fighting i think amongst mm-hmm. the reservists and the army and, and again because the army is so large for this war i have high hopes that the unity will prevail now there will all you know it's israel it's it's a country like any other in some ways, even though it's a country like no other in many ways, and we're Jews, you know, a people like any other in some ways and a people like no other in some ways. There there is going to be political disagreements, that's for sure. You know, we have yet to see what the fate of this government is, what the fate of Bibi is going to be, but I do think that in in large they they've realized that there is a common enemy and they can't take their eye off that ball anymore. And then in the end, they're they're all Jews and they want to see one another succeed.
0: Yeah, I want to go through your itinerary, your journey bit by bit. But before I want to ask you just another introductory question. I I wasn't there, right? But I, I've been trying to keep tabs or to try to be plugged in as much as I can what's actually happening in the ground. I mentioned in some of my other shows that I I, you know, I tried to watch some Israeli television in the original Hebrew, not get the foreign spin on it to get more like a, a local spin. And one of the recurring themes is that there's been somewhat of a religious renaissance in the land. Now I know that back in the Six-Day War and its aftermath, and the O'Kipper War and its aftermath, in both of those instances, there was a dramatic renaissance of religion. People saw things and they witnessed things and they underwent things. They saw miracles. And that awakened maybe somewhat of a dormant a religious spirit within them. From what I've seen as an outsider, it looks like this current conflict, both the events, the terrible, awful, brutal events of October 7th, but also the war, it seems to me like I what I've heard, what I've what I've again encountered as an outsider, is that there has been. Uh, an insatiable demand for Tsitsis, and people want to work it's fill in, and people saying Shema and I will say, with the help of the Almighty. Did you get a sense when you were there that there was somewhat of a, a religious uh, awakening amongst the troops and amongst the populace?
1: You know, um, there, there's certainly some evidence to that effect. Um, one of the, the things I'll talk about is our visit to the Shura army base, um, and with Rabbi Atlas, who, who provides the troops with all of their religious accoutrements. And, um, there has been high demand for tzitzit. Um, but I would say that it depends on exactly what you mean by religious awakening. You know, it's, it's hard for me to tell, you know, for very secular people, for instance. What the meaning to them is of wearing tzitzit or yarmulkes um, when they're serving and why they're doing that. Um, it seems logical that with the largest fighting force Israel has ever assembled and with their desire to, to have these um, religious articles that, that this will be kind of a sticky, uh, religious re- reawakening. Um, You know, I I don't think everybody that was secular previously is going to become orthodox, but I I do think that it's put people in touch with that aspect of being Jewish. And, you know, for a lot of Israelis, that's not necessarily a central aspect of being Jewish or being Israeli, you know, meaning the the religious, the religiosity, adherence to mitzvot and halacha isn't necessarily central. But I do think that this has has maybe opened some people's eyes to being open to that. And um, it'll be very interesting to see. You know, as you said, previous wars have had that effect. Sixty seven, seventy three. And we did hear from a lot of soldiers about miraculous things they witnessed, but they've also witnessed horrifying things. So. You know, I, I don't know. I, I I think if if anything, this will bring a deeper understanding
0: and respect between the more religious and the less religious. And of course, that is to be celebrated. Okay, let's go through your trip. You give us again. You and I have that spoken just for the audience. You just gave me a very basic uh, overview. You said, "Hey, I went. Let's go. Let's record. I'm so excited." I don't know exactly what you did. So. Talk to me more about what the trip was like, and some of the things that you encountered, some of the things you learned, some of the places you went, some of the people you met. Let's let, let's go through there because let let's go through that because I feel like it could be very helpful for us as people who did not have that great privilege in a sense of of the pulse of Israel, the people, and the events happening right now to our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. Sure.
1: And and before I go through the trip, I'll just I'll, I'll talk briefly about how I ended up on this trip and who organized it. Um, this trip was was organized by a Torah in uh, Jerusalem. And, you know, from what I understand, they just thought, you know, should we offer a trip? Is anybody going to want to want to come here? What will we do with them once they get here? You know, and so they kind of put the APB out to their branches across the United States and Canada and uh, they figured they'd get 30, 35 people rent a bus. Um, they actually had uh, a lot of demand. There were 70 of us who ended up on the trip. They needed two buses um, from all over the country and Canada. You know, there were five or six of us from Denver, people from Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, New Jersey. There was a very large contingent from Toronto. That was the largest uh, a group by far. Apparently, they have a, a thriving Aish community up there. Um, and, uh, you know, we were all, I'd, I'd say, in a similar boat. People who who wanted to help, this opportunity presented itself, and uh, we jumped at it. For me personally, um, it was my wife who got the email from a, a local Ash rabbi, Menachem Lairfield, and
0: friend of the pod uh, she
1: friend of the pod friend of the pod exactly and uh he uh, had sent an email uh my wife is on his email list and she told me about it and i thought oh that's interesting i wonder why she's telling me this because there's no way she would allow me to go on this trip she's a pretty cautious person um but then you know she said why don't why don't you go and i said really uh okay, yeah. Uh, Why don't I go? And I signed up for it. And, you know, I asked her, I said, why do you think it's important? I'm surprised that you are, 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 you want me to go on this trip? Did you, did you increase the, my life insurance policy? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you know, I just, uh, you know, I will say like many of us since October 7th, I've had a difficult time thinking about anything else. You know, I'm reading the news. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm on a couple different different uh, WhatsApp groups where I get updates. Um, it's been hard for me to concentrate on, on other things. And, you know, I, she said, you know, I just, I can't have you pacing around the house like a caged animal all winter. You know, you, you, I know you. you, you need to do something. And she said also, you know, this will set a good example for the boys. And, uh, I was very grateful, uh, that she had this perspective. And of course she's right. It's an important thing to do. And my boys were very scared, actually. They're 11 and 13 years old. And when I told them I was going, they just said, no, you're not going. <laughs> and I, I said, okay. All right. Let me, let me talk to the rabbi and try to get a sense of how dangerous or safe this is going to be. And then we'll discuss it. So I talked to Rabbi Lairfield he told me that we would be staying in jerusalem which is pretty safe and we you know we were obviously going to have armed guards with us the whole time um and his feeling was that it was relatively safe now once we got there we ended up very close to gaza on a number of occasions very you know in the west bank um so i'm not sure that it was you know we we weren't in jerusalem the whole time but still you know my own calculus was Hamas has their hands full. The, the rockets, uh, the, the amount of daily rockets coming in Israel had decreased a lot. Um, so I wasn't too worried about that. Um, as far as an escalation of the war from Iran and their proxies, uh, like Hezbollah, I wasn't too worried about that either because, uh, president Biden and the Biden administration decided to send the two aircraft carriers and a nuclear submarine to the area. So I thought that the chances of, of an es- that sort of escalation were fairly low. And I really thought that the most dangerous thing was, uh, being stabbed by a terrorist in Jerusalem, um, which has happened. There was a police officer who unfortunately died, um, from a stab wound and, uh, I know that a couple of attacks have been foiled um, in Jerusalem, so I thought that was the biggest danger. But it was a danger that I was willing to accept in order to um, be able to lend a hand and, and provide my support.
0: Plus, if you're going to go, it's uh, not a bad way to go. In a blaze of glory, dying for the Almighty because you're a Jew in the land of Israel, we'll take it. Okay, That's right. That, that is not That is the best way to die. You didn't tell that to your kids or your wife, but... No. <laughs> I didn't Okay, so you, I did so not. you arrive you arrive, in, you arrive in Israel and what happened We arrive
1: in Israel um we all arrive at a, a similar time we meet in Ben Gurion Airport which is um you know quarter capacity
0: eighth capacity the only and Most most airlines are not flying right
1: I think it's only El Al and Lufthansa and I don't think that Lufthansa has many flights going now so it's basically El Al And um, so it was very quiet. Uh, For those of you who have been there, there's that long ramp that you walk down um, or up, depending on if you're coming or going. And and on that ramp um, was lined with photos of all the hostages. And uh, we met, gathered our bags. There were a lot of bags because we had everybody had brought extra bags filled with goods for the soldiers. Um, you know, each unit has their needs. I know Rabbi Lairfield put, I don't know how many bags he brought, a lot. Um, he used his mother's house in Miami as as a, a, a staging for loading the no, bags.
0: They're bringing bags from just people who
1: wanted to send stuff to Israel, exactly. They, they requested donations. Um, I think they provided links to Amazon uh, with exactly what product was needed because, you know, for the, for military uses, the products have to be just right. They have to be the right color, um, and the right specs. And it was everything from clothing, a lot of clothing, uh, to headlamps, uh, pocket knives and multi-tools, um, all kinds of stuff, anything a soldier might need that they can't get their hands on. So we brought, you know, between the 70 of us, uh, Dozens and dozens of, of duffels, you know, each, each weighing 50 pounds, um, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of, of goods for the soldiers that were directly requested by different units stationed all over the country. And, uh, you know, for exactly what they needed. Uh, so we brought those in, um, loaded the bus and, uh, went directly from there to a company called, uh, a pantry packers which is a, a nonprofit in Israel that provides food to uh, needy families. And um, in this case, uh, they are now bringing food to displaced people. But I, I don't really, you know, I don't know what you call these. Is displaced people the right word? Is refugee the right word? Uh, these are people, you know, primarily from The Gaza envelope, as it's called. There's there's a Hebrew term, which I I can't recall, but.
0: Otef, Otef Aza.
1: Yeah, Otef Aza. Or, um, or the north, you know, the the
0: north had to be evacuated as well. I think there are, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are not home. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Hundreds of thousands
1: living in hotels. We visited with them, living with friends and family, um, you know, living wherever they can. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine this is a very small country with this many soldiers, you know, what, what this has done to the economy, it's had, you know, a real effect on the economy and there's no tourists, you know, tourism has, has ground to a halt. Um, so in, in any area that relies on tourism, uh, there's there are problems with earning earning a living with any area that uh, has a lot of soldiers uh, who have have gone to uh, report for duty, um, oftentimes the breadwinner of a family um, you know, that creates problems. So really, the whole country has to kind of pull together to keep these people in, you know, housed and fed. And clothes for that matter. And pantry packers, I know also, uh, gets clothing together for these people. And it's, it's deeply appreciated, um, by everybody. So that, that was the first thing that we did. Um, from there, uh, we went to the hotel, um, kind of checked in and then went to age where we had dinner and, uh, were uh, lucky enough to hear from a couple people with a lot of insight into what was happening um the 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 head of of Eish, Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz he gave a uh, a very insightful talk you know about what what we were going through as a nation as you know the greater nation of, of Jews Am Yisrael. Israel, and uh that was incredible to hear him uh and we also got to hear from General Doron Gavish uh who was instrumental in in bringing the Iron Dome and David Sling and and other military technology into into Israel. And he also answered questions at the end of his talk. Um, Among the many interesting insights he has uh, was the fact that, you know, Hamas's goals in their October 7th attack or their plans were to penetrate very deep inside Israel. Um, and, and I think this is, that's an important thing to note that, you know, to do what they did took years of planning, billions of dollars, real coordination, and, uh, and they had lofty goals. Um, they, they wanted to get to Jerusalem. They wanted to get to Tel Aviv. Um, now, I, I don't know to what degree they really thought that, that they would be successful. I actually personally think that they were surprised by the level of success, if you can call it that, that they had. Um, and, and partly because of that, because they didn't really expect to get that far. Um, this response has been much more than they can handle. Uh, but the was fact
0: they, he, he he was saying that they, they thought they would go, they had plans to go even further.
1: Yes, and that documents on their bodies and and communications that they've heard, they they know what that... stopped them. Do we know what stopped them? I think that um, you know I I I don't know if it was General Gavish or or someone else who who they were not once they once they crossed the border and once they were engaged in their lunacy they ceased to be any kind of
0: command the control
1: rational controlled fighting force you know it really became um, kind of a free for all and they didn't really have any kind of missionary discipline um, uh, which thank god they didn't because had they maintained that with the IDF's flow response, they could have
0: done a lot more damage. Um, yeah, I, I, when I was watching some Israeli television, I saw uh, a, like a Middle East expert who I became a big fan of. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Kedar, Mordechai Kedar, I think is his name. And he was saying that this operation, like he said, it was in the works for a long time, but it was supposed to be multi-pronged, from the north, Hezbollah was going to attack, the, the, the Syrian factions that are allied with Iran were going to attack, the Houthis were going to attack, and it was all going to happen simultaneously. And they were hoping to bring Israel to its knees with this multi-pronged, surprise attack. And he says that Hamas jumped the gun because of this music festival, this awful music festival, What's happening? And they said we're just going to jump the gun, and they did it without coordinating with their other partners, so to speak, on this, on this, uh, on this venture, and uh, and they just went on their own. But um, that gives the sense like the size of the, the size of this calamity, this this attack is just unimaginable. It's the worst attack ever, and it could have been even even bigger. Well, again, this is his theory. I'm, I'm not taking any credit or attribution for it. Um, but yeah, like this, it's hard for us to even fathom, but it could have been even worse. And that's just uh, absolutely uh, terrifying. I, I've heard similar things before
1: that, that this was supposed to be coordinated and for various reasons, it, di- it didn't go that way. And, and thank God. And I think that that's similar to previous wars Israel has had where in part, the incompetency of the enemies has um, allowed Israel to survive what otherwise might have ended the state. You know, uh, if you look at how, how how long it took the IDF to respond to this, even with how poorly disciplined Hamas was, um, if it had been a multi-front attack, it, the damage might have been much worse and maybe it would have been impossible to overcome. So, you know, I don't know if... Those are all examples of, of miracles or not, but it is pretty uncanny to see some of the mistakes that the enemies make um, in these situations,
0: and not to say that our side is free of mistakes, as has been you know well established and documented. But in addition, I, I want to point out, it's important to mention that there were many individuals grabbed their guns and, and, and headed south. When they heard about it, they heard about this infiltration. Uh, th- there are a lot of very brave soldiers, but also civilians that just jumped right in and took on their danger head-on. Yeah, we had the
1: pleasure of meeting with two of them one day and uh, hearing their stories. And I'll get to that uh, uh, later, but hearing their stories was was. Really, truly incredible. And also it's a good example. Um, you know, one of them is not religious. The other one is religious and hearing some of the differences and kind of what they make of this, um, was, was very interesting and in their, and their responses to it. And I don't know if, you know, the way they've responded to this is all because of whether or not they're religious or not, but two guys who did very similar things on that day saw very similar things, you know, came away with some, some different perspectives.
0: Okay, so tell us more about what happened in your trip. So, so
1: Wednesday, our second day on the trip, um, we started out, uh, we went to a place where we, we made sandwiches for soldiers. Now, uh, This seems, you know, like, I assume that a lot of my time there was going to be spent doing these kinds of menial tasks, you know, stocking grocery shelves, picking produce, making sandwiches, and I was all too happy to do that if that's what was needed. But I will tell you, um, just the experience of making sandwiches for these soldiers in itself was incredibly inspiring and remarkable. And you show up to, uh, we're doing it out of a restaurant called Aroma, which I guess is a fairly well-known Israeli chain. And I'm not exactly sure of the structure here, if this was donations by the Owner of the restaurant, or if this was, they were just letting, you know, uh, this volunteer group use their their space. But in any case, you go there, and the entire place is packed with Israelis, um, all just making sandwiches, just nonstop, just you know, total chaos. You have a handful of people who are kind of coordinating the whole thing. You show up as a volunteer, they tell you what to do. And you just get in the assembly line. And uh
0: this talk is making me hungry. What what kind of sandwiches are we talking about?
1: (laughs) You know, we had tuna sandwiches, we had uh
0: sandwiches.
1: (laughs) 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 I I was on the um roasted turkey and pastrami sandwich line. Okay, that's
0: closer. Okay, you like that one?
1: That one is good. I will say the bread was the bread was gorgeous, gorgeous fresh bread. Um I My job was to put the meat on the bread after someone else had put mayonnaise on it, and the next person put the tomatoes and pickles on it, and then the person after that wrapped them. And wow. to my right was a 15-year-old girl who uh, didn't have school and decided to come make sandwiches. To my left was a retired Orthodox woman who decided to come make sandwiches. Everybody was there. Little children, lots of little kids were there, like elementary school age kids running around, helping, doing anything needed, bringing boxes back and forth, throwing things out, you know, getting you extra ingredients that you needed. Um, lots of retired people. Um, but also people, you know, to their way to their shift at work or on their way home from their shift at work. Uh, who would just stop by for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Cause they wanted to pitch in, um, you know, those who, you know, were really physically unable to do anything, uh, too difficult. You know, I have a great photograph of a table of four or five, uh, very old women, you know, I don't know, in their eighties, uh, putting stamps on bags so that you knew which kind of sandwich you were going to get,
0: um, we're gonna include this picture in the description of the podcast. Oh,
1: we'll put that <laughs> in there. I, mean, it was just, it, it, you know, it was just so inspiring, and to really, uh, uh, the first thing that I really saw, you know, out on the streets, this this group of people pulling together and doing this, and you know, so many people have served in previous wars, so anybody you meet, you know, whether it's the taxi driver or whomever, you know, will show you a picture on their phone of, of when they were serving in 73 or in, you know, one of the Lebanon wars, you know, it's just so as a society, they understand and empathize with what the soldiers are going through. And they know it's not abstract to them. They know that what they're doing makes a difference.
0: And it's amazing because you're, if you think about it, like the war effort, You making sandwiches is a very, very marginal part of the war effort. It's important of course, But even even at such a distant part from the center, from the epicenter of the combat, you still feel like you're part of it. And you're still involved. You still feel that that spirit uh, of volunteerism and spirit of unity. It's still so palpable there. And I'm thinking just how far we are here in America. We're so removed from it. And that's, that's really the benefit of that experience to actually be boots on the ground. Even if you're not going to be close, close to the action, you're still a part of it and you still feel like you're within the collective effort of our people. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, you know, it's a
1: substantive and meaningful thing to do. And you felt like that. And it's just making sandwiches, but it's important. And, you know, and also lots of the people around me had kids and grandkids who were serving. Um, so for them, it's, it's even closer, you know, yeah, a lot of them have served themselves, but the fact that their kids and grandkids are are serving now, you know, it's, 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 it's very, you know, it's, it's right up front for them, for everybody. Uh, so after that, we, um, met with a representative from Hatsala. I think I'm saying that correctly. Hatsala is, uh, A volunteer ambulance service, essentially. And he talked to us about the organization, which I had never heard of and is really just an incredible story of how this uh, organization started um, from a young man who, you know, thought that ambulances took too long when he was 15 years old, bought a ham radio, listened to the police, uh, 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 the police, um, station and, started to respond. He knew CPR, he saved some people's lives, and from there it grew into this very large organization that uh responds to medical incidents in in Israel. And so we uh, have a
0: branch uh, of we have a branch of Hatzala in Houston, mm-hmm. Texas. As there yeah. are in many cities, many large Jewish cities, large, you know, relatively large uh cities and, and communities, they have local branches of Hatzalah. But it's an unbelievable thing. It's like a uniquely I don't know if it's a uniquely a Jewish thing, but it's it's something which really I think embodies the spirit of kindness and brotherhood and uh and volunteerism that uh is uh, one of the hallmarks of our, our, our nation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and they are becoming more well known in Israel, but they still are not actually um they're not ubiquitous. Um, but they're they're gaining ground every day, and I think after this they'll be even more well known uh but you know they many you know they had first responders to these events in the South, and people who just volunteer uh as uh medical care providers for Hatsala went down and put themselves in harm way harm's way to to help the injured and to provide medical treatment to the injured. And when I say the injured, you have to realize that we're talking about amongst terrorists, amongst live fire going into the breach, often getting injured themselves. Um, and he told us a couple stories of miraculous heroism um, that saved lives uh, for people Amazing. running down there, riding their motorcycles down there, their their medical equipment equipped motorcycles seeing an injured person and running into the heat of battle um to try and save a life and this was not uncommon among the the Hatzalah members in the area unbelievable and they also have the ability to set up very quickly uh, uh field hospitals and so a lot of the injured from the party and the kibbutzes, uh, were treated at these field hospitals. Um, so, you know, just another amazing <clears throat> facet of the gem that is the Jewish people that you just, you know, might not notice, might not hear of, might not realize how important it is. And I'll mention not all the Hatzalah volunteers are Jewish, um, you know, in Israel. Many of them are Druze or Arab, um, or Christian. And uh, you know, they contributed as well to this um too. Um so, you know, Hashem, thank God for them. They're they're incredible people who are really selfless. Um, and that, that kind of selflessness was, was certainly a theme, uh, throughout the trip. And, uh, after that, um, our next stop was really for me, maybe the most intense and impactful moment of the trip. Um, uh, we visited the Shura Army base. This is, I believe, the army base where the chief rabbi of the IDF um, is based out of. It is also the base where they prepare bodies uh, of soldiers um, and people who have uh, died in combat.
0: I'm just going to give a quick disclaimer. You told me this ahead of time that what you're going to talk about now might be a little bit disturbing to some people. So... If someone doesn't have a stomach for it, maybe they should just fast forward a few minutes uh, and uh, if they want to avoid it. But uh, go ahead, so Shura army base. Yeah, so um, uh, there are two parts of this
1: tour. The first one was where we uh, learned how the bodies were treated. And then the second part was this is also the base where they house all of the religious equipment for the troops. Um, and so i'll just kind of go in order uh the, so the first uh the first part um we were led by Rav Bensi Mann, who works for uh Mizrahi in his civilian life um he's an israeli uh, his parents are american and he spent 4 years in england and he came back uh i, I can't remember if he came back the war effort or before that but in any case he was telling us that he was very disappointed that he couldn't contribute to the war effort because uh of his health and he didn't mention uh what aspect of his health um precluded him from that but just that he you know felt an intense need to to help and about that time, he got a call from the army and they said, we need you. We need you at Shura Army Base. I think it is because, um, if I recall, he has some expertise in the laws around um, death and burial. And so he described for us his experience so so, so far. Um you know, particularly in the days and weeks following October 7th. As, as you can imagine, you know, we've all heard and read and seen videos of all the ways that the terrorists murdered people, um, shooting them, burning them, um, dismembering bodies, um, everything. And this army base is, you know, is designed to, you know, I guess in, in, in a difficult battle and in a war, you know, you might have tens, you know, maybe dozens of, of bodies, um, that, that you might are, be required to process, if I can use that term, uh, uh, you know, at a time, um, to prepare for burial. You certainly, This certainly was not a base designed with the idea that there would be over a thousand, you know, 1,200 bodies, Jewish bodies to prepare, not to mention 700 or so terrorist bodies and the need to differentiate between those, which is extremely complicated in itself. So what he told us was that, um, you know, in the first days, they actually had, um, sugar trucks, or I guess there's a sugar company, a well-known sugar company in Israel that the trucks are, are, are visible and, and recognizable to the average Israeli citizen. And these truckloads would come and they would be full of bodies and remains. And oftentimes they would be in, in bags. Um, and, you know, he, he would, he would be unloading these bags and some of them would be very heavy to a hundred pounds or more, 250 pounds. And some of them would be very small, um, you know, a few pounds and the size and weight of the bag, uh, you know, would depend upon who was in there. You know, an adult male or a child or a baby It would also depend on how much of their remains were left. And each of these bags had to be opened. And this man and the people that work with him had to look in each of these bags. And uh, make decisions from there on how they were going to handle each and every one of these people who had been murdered. Um, Just a job that is difficult beyond imagining. And they had to do this for weeks on end, every single day, go to this army base, pull out these bodies, look at them, try to determine how to identify them. Um, That in itself is just, you know, heroism to a level that, that I can't even imagine. And this is not, you know, I imagine that a lot of countries, a lot of armies around the world would not necessarily go to these lengths. I know that they wouldn't. They wouldn't go to these lengths of making sure that you identify each and every body taking treating them with the kind of dignity and respect that is required of jewish law um one of the stories that we heard was that uh there were some remains that the army could not identify uh their equipment their you know the Their ability to extract the DNA from these particular remains, I believe it was because of the degree to which they were burnt, um, was not, uh, would not allow them to identify, uh, these bodies. So they took the remains to a lab in the United States and identified them at this lab that does have the technology to do this. And the lab technicians in the United States could not understand. They asked the Israelis who brought them there, so you're telling me that you just, you just brought these bodies here? just for these two people, just to identify them? Yes, they did. Um, and that's the level of seriousness, which would they take their job. Um, you know, there were a lot of women working on the base. The, the women's bodies and the men's bodies were treated uh, by either women or men, respectively. And uh, one of the women spoke to us, and she said, you know, that they they essentially treat the bodies, according to the laws of news, you know, of modesty, they literally treat these remains of human beings as if they wanted to be treated while they were living. That's what she said, how they would want to be treated while they were living. So these people did this day after day after day, all day, every day for weeks. Working with these bodies, treating them With the highest level of dignity and respect, treating them within the bounds of Jewish law, making sure that everybody was identified and differentiated from one another. Um, That's one aspect of the job. job. Another aspect of the job is speed. They want to identify the 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 bodies as quickly as possible and notify the families as quickly as possible. Um, because they don't want the families to find out from anybody but them. They want to make the first call and make sure that this family knows and has the time to come uh, to the base and and begin the mourning process. Um, so that's another thing that, that happened on a near constant basis for weeks after October 7th. Um, they had a, a separate room where an individual body is laid, and the family would come and begin their mourning process there and uh, then, then move on. But this was, you know, hundreds of families, if not, you know, and thousands of people who were on this base every day. Uh, the base had 17 rooms where they process bodies. Uh, they had to subdivide one of the rooms and create an 18th room. Um, because of the, the volume of bodies that they were, uh, processing. Um, and, uh, like I said, uh, there were 700 terrorists or so who, you know, bodies that they believe are terrorists. They have to go through each one of those bodies with the same level of care to identify to make sure that they are not inadvertently putting an Israeli amongst the terrorists. And at the time I was there a week ago, they had already found 18 Israelis among the bodies that they had uh, believed to be terrorists. So that process um, will continue as well. Um, and uh, I'm sure still is. Um, the the the. The man who, who led the tour, you know, he told us that, um, you know, the first day he went home and he took a shower and he just he couldn't get the smell off. And, you know, they described the smell of this facility, um, which is just um, really horrible to think about. And he called a friend and said, I, I can't get rid of the smell. And his friend said, it's, it's in your head. You know, you, you don't like, you don't smell that anymore, but, but, you know, you, you, you're going to be living with this for a while. Um, and, and the, the trauma that, that these people are going through who, who are doing this. Um, they know they're, they're very aware of this, that they don't really know the psychological toll that it's taking on them. Um, the IDF has provided and, and the country has provided a lot of psychological care for them and for everybody else involved in this you know the, many of the victims their families um but that, that that's a, a big part of this and an important um aspect of this is that you know they these are all sophisticated people they know that this is not something that you can do with no toll um yet they go in every day and do it um rabbi man told us that you know he hadn't he he, had, he started to get worried because he stopped crying and uh it had been weeks or even a month since he had cried and at one point he went home to his three-year-old and he was playing hide and seek with his three-year-old and his three-year-old hid under a sheet and when he saw this the dam broke and this was you know it was it was a similar image to what he had seen working on shura and he just said like since then he, he's had no problem crying it's the tears have come back and they've, they've
0: come back, you know, in force. This is, like you said, it's, 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 it's act of heroism. It's called in the, in the Torah, it's called, uh, has said truthful kindness. I'm sure you heard that, that term, the kindness that you do with the dead to help prepare them for burial, to help bury them, to accompany them in their funeral. That's the highest level of kindness because you're not anticipating any reward, in the words of of, of the Talmud. And I think it's maybe surprising for people to hear about the laws about burial and the imperative to do it fast, to, to do it with tremendous dignity accorded to the bodies, and to make sure that every part of the body gets buried. Like when someone dies. An old person if they dies and they have some you know, catheters or things like that. Those are buried with the body. People don't know that. Jewish law, every part of them, because there's a little bit of blood, or a little bit of some secretions that are in those pipes, in those, uh, in those catheters, they go into the coffin as well. I just saw this uh, a couple of days ago. The, the terrorists, they killed a lot of the party goers by this festival. In their car. They burned out their cars. So there's dozens and dozens of these of these holes of burnt out cars. And this organization, Zaka, which I'm sure you encountered them as well. Zaka is the big organization that goes to terrorist attacks and, and, and takes care of, of bodies to prepare them for, for burial. But they go and they try to scrape up and collect every little bit of The body, even even the smallest bit of blood, to, to bury that as well in accordance with the law. But I, I read this maybe yesterday or something like that. They couldn't get all the human remains out of these vehicles, and they made a decision to bury the actual cars. I don't know if you saw the story. Which is I did not. <laughs> first time it's I I, I, I always the headline, but the first time it's ever been done. But they're taking these holes of cars, these these empty, burnt-out cars, and they're going to bury them because there's, there's so much, you know, human remains just all over, embedded into the walls of the car. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, um, on the Army base, they did mention that, you know, how closely they're wor- working with Zaka, as well as other organizations, um, and how it really is a collective effort. But Shura and Zaka and, and what they do, To me, first of all, I'll tell you, I've never cried so much in a week as I have on this trip. I mean, it was just, you know, you could not, everything, everything was so emotional and um, so real. And uh, I'm not a crier, you know, but like you just, it's the only way to to relate to what's going on in, 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 in an authentic way. And and everybody, you know, I mean, you didn't even have to look around. You just knew that everybody was crying, you know, as you're seeing this, among many other things that that we've seen. But I think that why this particular uh, experience was so powerful is, to me, this is, this crystallizes what the Jewish people are about that even in death, the amount of dignity and respect you have for human life is at the forefront of everything. You know, this is that in tragedy, in the horrors of of what these people see, you know, this to me is what it means to be a light unto the nations, you know, to show that the humanity... The humanity, the importance of humanity, the the primacy of human life, of dignity and respect for human life, to go to these lengths to acknowledge that these remains are the remains of a real human being, an individual to be treated as individuals, that it's in such stark contrast to the people who perpetrated these crimes and these murders. And it just it blows my mind that that people can't see this, that there are so many people who fail to see this who have such a difficult time recognizing this and that's one of the reasons why I think that what they're doing on this army base, what zaka is doing, what the people at Shura are doing is so important to get out there because it really it really shows uh you know. The the best of 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 what we are as a people and and what Torah
0: is. Yeah, it's w- one of the lines that we read in the Mishnah that really reverberates in the heart of our nation is that if you save one life, you save the whole world. Every first message, say the world was created for me, that's the value that we accord in a single life, and this is, is manifested, of course, in the in the hostage negotiations, because you know we'll 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 give up. Um, 1,200 soldiers, 1,500 soldiers, what, for one? It turns out that that might be a fair exchange because the value that we place upon one life is really effectively infinite. That when you were there, were they still doing this process of identification, body identification, or they had completed that?
1: It had slowed down a lot. You know, obviously it it, it continues because soldiers um, are continuing to die, but they had finished... Most of the victims of October 7th. And at that point, I think they had turned their attention to the 700 bodies that, um, they, um, thought were terrorists. Um, I- I'm not sure what they're going to do with those bodies. I have a feeling that the enemy will not care and, uh, won't really care if those remains are returned to them or not. Um, uh, so that process is ongoing. Um, but, you know, as we walked through the halls, you know, I don't know if it was in my head or not, but I could detect a certain odor, um, a certain smell, um, you know, they keep it very clean, but I did see, you know, a clump of hair, you know, that I just wondered where it had come from. And, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it
0: was a huge operation. Um, mm. to go through that um, tell us more about the, the other uh, aspects of this army base so there was also where they housed all the religious paraphernalia Yes, yeah, so um this base um, that that
1: aspect of the base is run by rabbi yadija atlas um uh who's been doing this job for a long time. He's a veteran of the 67 and 73 wars.
0: With a name um, like that, he
1: better be a a worldly kind of fellow. Okay. He's
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he's got the world on his shoulders at this point. Yeah.
0: Um okay yeah.
1: Yeah. He 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 was a remarkable guy. Um he has developed a lot of the religious equipment and gear that the soldiers use, including the, the Tzitzi t T-shirts, um, the little prayer book that this, the soldiers take with them, um, which he developed a plastic case for so that they can take it anywhere they go. They can take it into the bathroom with them, um, because it's, it's encased.
0: um, and he uh, also just to clarify, every soldier is issued a prayer book. Is that right? Yes,
1: yes, that's right. And uh, they carry it in their chest pocket. Uh, it fits perfectly in their chest pocket as a plastic case. They can read it anywhere, anytime. Um, and there are four hundred. And, and just, forms... just to
0: explain, if someone doesn't understand. Yeah. There's a prohibition to bring any religious articles or prayer books. Or torah bus into the restroom unless it is wrapped really double wrapped so you're saying that that, that was you know that was the the cover was designed to accommodate the, the halachic requirements to bring wherever you go
1: exactly um and this this base houses 400 torahs um, 200 of which were in the field when we were there and the other 200 are in uh in various states of being repaired um and these are torahs from all over the world. They had some famous torahs in there, torahs that have survived the Holocaust. Um, but it was really incredible being in that room, um, you know, with all these uh, torahs. Uh, we did a little Simchat Torah dance and song in there, which was really moving and incredible. And and uh, just to see how how important this is, you know, that that uh, even in the heat of battle and on the battlefields that. You know, this is important to, you know, for 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 religious reasons, for troop morale, um, you know, and to really have that be part of the operation of an army um, was was really incredible. Um, he's also developed portable libraries of Jewish texts that bases have requested. Um, and invented a, a kind of case that you can kind of put them all in and make sure that every army base has its, uh, the Torah books that it needs. And, you know, Torah study is pretty, pretty regular among a lot of the troops. Um, so to be able to keep up with their studies, uh, you know, you have a lot of people who would be studying in Yeshiva or Kolal who have been called up. Um, and, uh, so, you know that that was really incredible to see just the sheer numbers. You know, hundreds of thousands of prayer books and and seat seat that they're uh, providing to the soldiers. Uh, and
0: yeah, that that was really a, a, a special experience. And and, and that kind of surreal if you think about it from a historical perspective. If someone told you like 200 years ago in, in 1823 that in 200 years there's going to be what seven million Jews living in Israel. And they're going to have an army where they have 400 Torah scrolls. If you told someone that 200 years ago, they'd say, "Okay, definitely Messiah came, right?" There's no other way to interpret that. Well, something really beautiful, beautiful and uh, and powerful and historical about it.
1: Absolutely, Uh, you know, I'm sure many people have read uh, Mark Twain's account of. Uh, Palestine in the late 19th century or the middle of uh, I can't remember exactly what year he was there 1860 1870 and he just describes the utter wasteland the utter uninhabited wasteland that he experienced when he was there I'd and love for him to you, see.
0: I will tell you that that is predicted in the Torah the Torah itself says that when we leave, the land will be desolate and barren and fallow and bereft of life and vitality. So it's it's a beautiful illustration of of the predictions of the Torah actually coming true, where we left and for a couple thousand years or almost two thousand years. It, uh, obviously, there were always some you know pockets of of life and civilization there, but for the most part, it was empty. And look at it now; it's just it's it's flowering. It's 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 blossoming and uh, it's booming and no one's going to say that it's perfect, but it is a beautiful thing to appreciate from a historical perspective, you know, a 30,000 foot vantage point of history. It's a beautiful story of transformation.
1: Yeah. And and an incredible uh, and unique story of transformation. And, you know, Nachmanides, Ramban also, uh, you know, uh, I think mentions that, the, the land will never thrive until its children return to it. And he lived there, um, I guess, in the, what is that, the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century. And um, it was pretty thinly populated Old when 60s, he was there as well. I'm
0: not mistaken. Oh, 60s. 60s. Yeah.
1: yeah. And and he mentions that as well. And the the sheer vibrancy of the country from agriculture to high tech, is It's undeniable.
0: Yeah, and I always say that when I went there, I've been there since we lived there before 2012. And I, I've been back now. I came once in 2015, 2017, 18, 19, 20, and then a couple of times last year. So I've been back, you know, seven, eight times. And ever since I started doing the podcast, I would go there and bring my microphone and all my paraphernalia. And I actually was recorded by the hotel. Uh, in two thousand and eighteen I, I I went through the um through the metal detector and they like so you can't bring that with you and, and the guy was on his phone and he kind of put it away. So I, so I just grabbed it and went and bolted. So and they could have arrested me. Uh but then yeah. at a subsequent time, I was in Jerusalem and I'm like, there isn't a single quiet spot to record. There's nowhere. <laughs> it's it's always loud and bustling and it's alive and vibrant and there's always construction there's always people and there's cars and there's beeping there's in a quiet spot in the whole country the whole country but uh, the most recent time that i went i said uh, i'm i'm doing my podcast ahead of time sorry i'm i'm pre-recording i I can't bring my microphone there anymore it's just too much noise and too much uh, chaos but uh it's it's a miraculous transformation it is beautiful to see that yeah
1: um so from from there uh we went to uh a hotel i wish i could remember the name of hotel it was a large hotel it was a nice hotel um and it's it's housing the families um from which is part of a larger group of of religious communities um in, in the gaza envelope um and, uh, so, and, and we heard their story. We met with, with one woman in particular who was widowed, um, that day. Um, but this is, you know, one of the things I love about Israel is the variety of religious practice and the variety of ways of, of being an observant Jew. So this is one of those communities where, you know, all the women have these beautiful head wraps and dresses. And the men are all wearing like jeans, t-shirt, tzitzit, a woven yarmulke, Birkenstocks, and of course, an Uzi, you know, or or whatever the M16s, I think they carry, you know, uh, in, in Israel. That's what the IDF uses. And, uh, you know, they're young. It's a, it's, a, it's a young community. Um, lots of little kids and, uh, they're all housed in this hotel and, um, you know you get there and the first thing i noticed was that it was very loud lots of kids running around playing yelling crying the mothers all walking around trying to figure out what's going on and this whole community has been put in this hotel and you know thank god they have a place to go but it, it, it can't be comfortable um in any case we talked to to one woman or one woman addressed us and and it's funny cuz you know, one thing that she said, she had stayed with her family for a while, but then she felt separated from her community, all her friends and, and, and her kids' friends, especially missed their friends. Um, her kids missed their friends and, and they decided to move from her father's house, um, to the hotel. And, you know, she mentioned that, you know, the one thing that was so hard was that it was so loud all the time. And, uh, you know I, I i can understand as a parent you know you know it's 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 a lot you know it's a lot to be you know you don't have a lot of privacy um you know you, you don't have your own home your own stuff and it's really a, a, it's it's not easy to be displaced like they are uh away from their jobs and their work you know i think i think it's a an agricultural community when they come from where they come from so i think a lot of them work in that field. Uh, and a lot of the men are in reserves now. Uh, and then we talked to another woman from the community who was, who was widowed that day. And basically what happened to this community was that they heard what was happening. Uh, the, but you know, nobody had a sense Nobody really understood what was happening. You know, is it a few terrorists? I don't think anybody understood for hours or days even that it was, you know, thousands of terrorists that had infiltrated. So the 12-man security detail from this uh, kibbutz or community got their weapons. They heard that a neighboring kibbutz had been attacked. And I think the neighboring kibbutz was mostly um, elderly. So they went up and didn't have their own security detail. So they went up to this kibbutz, which was a few kilometers north of where they were, to protect that community. And they actually managed to fight so fiercely that the terrorists left. However, one of them died in the fighting, and it was her, his widow who who addressed us. And like so many of the Israelis that we met, she was incredibly grateful and strengthened by the fact that we were there and that we cared. And, you know, people who have been through something traumatic, you know, it's so obvious to me now that to share their, how important it is for them to share their story and to feel like they're being heard and to feel like they're being heard from people who, you know, genuinely and authentically care for them and want to hear their story. And I can tell you everybody that we listen to, you could hear a pin drop. Um, you know, that's really, that really became for me why we were there was to listen to people and to acknowledge them and to, to, to really receive what they needed to give. And, you know, she was just an inspiring person. She has six kids and she wants to move back there. And, you know, she really wants to make sure that her husband's death wasn't for nothing. And, you know, I know that personally, and, and I think I speak for everybody that was there, you know, I, it, it's definitely not, you know, the, 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 the inspiration that we all got from his self-sacrifice, his bravery. And he wasn't, you know, he was, he was a very important member of the community. He was, uh, you know, I think, uh, the incoming chair of, of the community, the incoming head or president of the community, you know, widely beloved widely respected um,
0: and just a real loss for everybody. Um, w- w- what about the rest of the people like are other residents that you met from the Gaza envelope as determined to go back as determined to rebuild or did you get a sense that some people were saying we're done with that you know the the, the, the country failed to go- to guard us to protect us we're out.
1: I think that the primary, for those who do not want to move back, the primary reason is their children. You know, depending on the age of the kid, you know, certainly kids in between, I would say, say 7 and 13 or 14, who really understood what happened, it's very scary for those kids. You know, and a lot of those kids, I think it would be very difficult for them to feel safe going back to their home. Um, it also depends on the degree to which the community witnessed atrocities. Um, you know, this particular community did not witness very many atrocities or any really. They managed to escape because of that 12-man detail that, that fought the terrorists off. You know, yeah, they they suffered a very serious loss um, with this man who died, um, but that's different, I think, than Barry, um or uh, some of the other communities that that witness more violence. Um, so it's hard to say. You know, it's just it's really hard to say who will return and who won't. I think in the main, those communities will continue on and a lot of people will move back. I don't know what will happen with what's like Bayaree, which, you know, a huge percentage of the population was wiped out. You know, there aren't even enough people left from there to go back and rebuild it. You need new people. Um, so I don't know. But whatever decision they make, I'll totally understand and respect. And, uh, you know, it's, no human being should ever have to make a decision like this. Um, let, let me just look here and see what the next thing was. oh i'll mention you know that these were the first people we had met who had were kind of refugees because of the of what had happened and one thing that i noticed throughout the trip is there wasn't a lot of overt cries for revenge you know vengeance wasn't top of mind um i i i i sensed no what i would call bloodlust at all you know there was a, there was some anger for sure um a lot of it directed towards you know the government um for not being there for taking so long to respond for not seeing this happening um there was an incredible amount of disappointment you know, disappointment at, you know, the naivete of the country, the naivete of some of the, the, their own communities, um, the lack of, of preparedness, but there, there wasn't bloodlust. There wasn't a deep need to avenge themselves. And, you know, I heard, I heard something, um, Hashem, Yikom, Hamam. May God bamam, avenge bamam. their blood. Gamam, yeah. May God avenge their blood. And I thought that was interesting because it doesn't say, may we avenge their blood, but may God avenge their blood. And I think that that was kind of under the surface in a lot of the conversations that I had with people. Like, look, we, we have a mission as a people. We have a mission as a country, which is to to build this country, to build up the Jewish community, um, to be Jews, to be a light unto the nations. And yes, we have a duty to protect ourselves and we have a duty to defend ourselves. But vengeance will leave to God. I I really felt that like I'm sure that there are individuals and individual soldiers who who are extremely angry and would like to take vengeance into their own hands. But in the main, I was surprised at how little of that I heard, Um, how rational and matter of fact so many of the soldiers and citizens were in terms of what they have to do now as a country to defend themselves, to destroy Hamas, um, and and taking care of that business that's in front of them. You know, um, and their ability to differentiate between that and you know there were there look there's a there's a variety of opinions on to what degree your average Gazan is a sympathizer or supporter of Hamas. Um, I think the general feeling is that that's pretty ubiquitous there, Uh, but obviously at some point you are an innocent child or and certainly there are people there who are probably very anti-Hamas and the Israelis keep this in mind. You know, the soldiers keep this in mind. Um, And I think this, this experience went a long way to breaking even some of their own naivete. You know, like I, you know, one person said to me, like, look, we, we know, we knew they weren't our friends, but, you know, we weren't expecting this at this time. And so I think that like happens when something like this happens, there is a general, uh, uh a general, you know, pe- pe- it wakes you up to the reality of, of who your enemy is, you know, something that you can forget because you don't think like them. The Israelis don't think like them. They don't think in those terms. And I think it's hard for us to remember that there are those who do think in those terms. You know, they do think in genocidal terms. They do think in a way that, that doesn't value life. Um, But these kibbutzniks, as well as the others that we met, you know, uh, have a a pretty sober view.
0: And I I, I will add maybe that if someone does feel the urge for revenge, I think that it could be justified. I'm not saying I I think that, you know, yeah, we do outsource our revenge to God, Hashem yukom damam, but I don't. I, I had someone who asked me a question, like right soon after the attack, is is feeling a desire for vengeance okay? And I said, yes, because again, God takes vengeance, and that's obviously a proper way to do it. And you definitely cannot allow a, such an event to not make an impact on you. So you, you have to acknowledge it, and I think that if someone does feel an urge for revenge, it's not an improper feeling per se. No, I agree, and I
1: certainly wouldn't judge... Any of them, for what their feelings are, given what they've experienced um and even those who wanted vengeance, they wanted vengeance on the killers you know they they did not want nobody wants to go on a killing spree of the kind that Hamas engaged in and yeah, uh, look
0: at it we've we've been we the Jews have been in land in large numbers for let's say a hundred years, okay. Already 100 years ago, there was 100,000 Jews there, and there are hundreds of instances where the Arabs came and indiscriminately targeted innocents. How many instances are there of the reverse? There's only one claim, and that's the uh, uh, the the massacre in 1994 of uh, Baruch Goldstein. And even that, some people claim that he thought there was a terrorist attack that he's trying to prevent. And I'm not, obviously, we're not going to condone such behavior, that's not our way. But it's unbelievable when you contrast these two warring peoples and one of them, they have this insatiable bloodlust where they've, there are literally hundreds of instances where they deliberately targeted and tried to kill individuals, uh, civilians. And there are effectively none in the opposite direction. So we definitely have a very different culture and different, def- a very different uh, set of values. And that comes to the front uh, in, in times like this. Yeah,
1: it's it's stark. Um, so you know, to continue the theme of, of differences of response to, to this kind of thing happening, that, that night, We had dinner with a bunch of young entrepreneurs who are already working on solutions to anti-Semitism, to um, preventing these kinds of attacks in the future. Uh, Just just another facet, again, (laughs) of the gem that is the Jewish people, you know, these young people who see a problem and immediately begin to work on solutions. You know, uh, one of them was working on a, uh, uh, solutions to anti-Semitism in social media, you know, ways of responding to that without using kind of soulless bots to just respond to everything. Ways for individuals to kind of apply their own personality and perspective on countering these anti-Semitic narratives on social media, um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll I don't know all the uh, names of these companies off the top of my head, but for the notes to your podcast, I'll get you links uh, so that you can you can provide them for people. Um, and uh, one guy I talked to, he uh, is a founder of a company that has developed a device that decreases friendly fire, which is the largest cause of death in the IDF, and I think the largest cause of death in many armies um so this is a device that goes on your gun and if you point your gun at a soldier who also has this device uh your gun will vibrate like you know i, I don't know if you've played video games where the the controller will vibrate and you know they thought about doing like laser tag you play
0: laser tag yeah. you can shoot the your
1: own teammates yeah like laser tag basically and uh he's you know raising funds for this business um but it was just you know it was their, their energy and intelligence of the whole population is just remarkable and you just every you everywhere you go you come across it you know the level of of, of education and, and and uh innovation is is really incredible so you know we had that dinner. I got to meet a bunch of really smart young people. Um, I, at the end, a young woman had mentioned that uh, her brother's unit needed certain right to upgrade their rifle sights, and uh, she had been raising money for that. Of course, when we heard that, we did uh, you know an off-the-cuff auction and raised the last seven thousand dollars or so that she needed. To, to get the rifle sights for her brother's unit. Um, so that was that was really inspiring to see. Um, the next day, uh, we got to go to another uh, nonprofit uh, and pick vegetables. Uh, so we got to go and dig in the dirt and harvest sweet potatoes. And this is a nonprofit that usually is providing Food for the needy, you know, inexpensive vegetables uh, and healthy foods for poorer families. And uh now, you know, they've pivoted a little bit to providing food for refugees, displaced people. Um and it's a great organization. I think it's called Leket again. Another link I will provide for your listeners in case they want to donate. Um, But that was amazing. You know, you're in the fields, you're picking sweet potatoes, you've got your hands in, you know, Eretz Yisrael, and pulling out these giant gorgeous sweet potatoes. And, you know, I was working with a, a couple Israelis, um, maybe in their 60s, who were both tour guides, and not a lot of tour guiding going on right now. So uh this is how they're spending their time you know, going out to volunteer. Um, They were both veterans of previous wars as well. And uh, it was just great spending time with them, you know, hearing them tell stories. They know, you know, these tour guides, they're so well-educated, well-trained. They were telling all kinds of stories about the history of Israel and farming and agriculture in Israel. And uh, that was just another incredible experience. Um, After that, we got to meet with, uh, an elite fighting unit, uh, called Team Five or Unit Five. So this group of soldiers was created in the wake of, I think the first Lebanon war where the generals had been watching the war on, on television screens and it caused problems even though in some ways they had a really great view of what was happening they weren't able to really feel the war feel what it was like on the battlefield and they realized that there was there was no substitute for bringing the generals into the fray and seeing what was happening getting a feel for it so they could make better decisions so they put together this team and what this team does is they send uh a number of soldiers into the battle to kind of clear space, make sure it's safe. They bring the general in, let him get a feel for what's happening, see firsthand what's happening. And then they take them out, uh, because the, this team is going in and out of Gaza multiple times every day. They can't break their routine to meet with us. So they just said, look, we have a training. You can come watch it. Uh, and then we'll spend some time with you after, but we, we, we can't like take an hour to just hang out with you. So we said, fine. So we got there. We all circle around one of the, the leaders. The people were talking with some rabbis that were talking and he had to tell everybody to be quiet <laughs> and to behave like we were in the military. So we all got very scared and very quiet and very military and. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really funny. And he then he just oh, and they held this training at a what was a, a British police station that was built in, I think, the early 40s. And so you can imagine this British police station. That once imprisoned Jews, you know, that was primarily who was locked up there um, were members of the Jewish resistance to the, uh, you know, British mandate. And now it's being used for IDF soldiers to train. It, it looks similar to the, its concrete buildings. It's similar to what you would see in Gaza. So we walked in and we watched as these they, they essentially ran this war game where they have the soldiers come in. They're throwing smoke bombs and bombs. They have one of the um, soldiers pretend to be injured. You know, they bring the general in. Actually, you know who they chose to be the general? Rabbi Lairfield got to be the general. <laughs> running in between, you know, two soldiers in front of him, two soldiers behind him, in and off the battlefield. You know, you see them pick up the injured soldier, um, bring him back, uh, put him on the truck, and then drive away. It was very intense. It was very loud. What a thrill. (laughs) It it was thrilling. It was thrilling. Um, And uh, afterwards, they talked with us. Now, the doctor of this unit is, uh, I think, 69 years old. And, uh, he moves very well for a 69 year old. He's got to jump on and off the truck and, uh, lean over to, to treat the wounded soldier. Um, and so, yeah, there is a, a what? I think the youngest was 19. The oldest is 69. So that 50 years, uh, 50 year swing in the, the ages of the, the members of this unit? And then afterwards they addressed us and they told us really how how incredible it was that we came and that we wanted to be there and how grateful they were. And it's very, it's very strange to hear this. You know, you, we, feel, we're the ones who should be grateful. They're the ones who are putting themselves in harm's way. Um Oh, what does that say, Clarissa? Oh, I think my, my recording has stopped. I might have to, uh will you grab miles? I don't know when it stopped.
0: Well, we we have the redundancy here because it's still recording okay. on Zoom. All right, I'll see if he can. Uh,
1: maybe he can send that, get it off his phone, so we can try to get more of it um, with the higher quality audio. Um, should we keep going, or should I wait till? Steve yeah, let's do just that? keep
0: going. Keep on going.
1: Okay. Um. So yeah, these 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 elite fighters who and the, the this unit, the members of this unit, come from other elite units. Uh, so it's it's really a, a mix. Hey, Miles, can you see if you can uh, maybe, s- I don't know. So, so the members of this elite unit come from all the other elite units of the IDF, and to hear them talking about how moved they were by the fact that we would come during this dangerous time. How much uh what's the word? Is it chizik? That you know chizik, that they get strength, yeah. yeah. Strength boost. boost that they get from us being there. And and, you know, these guys aren't actors. They're soldiers. You know, it's it was so heartfelt. It, that the way that they felt that we were there, you know, this this group of just regular Jews ranging in age from, you know, I think maybe the youngest people on the trip were in their early thirties, you know, up until, you know, their late seventies. Um, you know, they really, you know, they said it reminds them of what they're fighting for, you know, around the world that it's not just Israel. They're fighting for Jews everywhere. And then we were addressed by a Druze soldier who was one of the, um, real uh 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 uh, you know one of one of the most one of the best soldiers in this unit and one of the most hardcore guys you know a couple of the other members singled him out as this guy is the guy you want to go into battle with and he came out and he addressed us and his english was not great but what he said was you know you make a choice whether to be a victim or whether to be a fighter and We are making the choice to be fighters. And, you know, he said, by coming here, you're making that choice. And it was really, you know, it was just incredible. And this was, you know, this was one of those units that puts the lie to the idea that all Israelis are blonde-haired, blue-eyed European Jews. I mean, there were Ethiopians. There was Druze. There was, there were Mizrahi guys. I mean, it was, you know, really, it, it, it ran the gamut um yeah it really was the full spectrum of Jews that that, they, that you see in Israel and they're all in this elite fighting unit uh relying on one each other, on on one another um and then afterwards you start talking to them and you see that you know most of these guys are in their 20s and 30s a lot of them have families wives and kids at home that they're leaving to go do this a lot of them have businesses uh they're entrepreneurs and yeah they're happy to talk to you about what it's like to go in and out of gaza and what it's like to be a soldier and the methods of their fighting unit but even more they just want to tell you about regular life you know we're talking to one guy who has who's wearing a mask and i was talking to him and he said oh you should talk to my brother he he has a he has a startup also so i went and talked to his brother And I said, what is your tell me about your startup? And he said, oh, we make a device that decreases friendly fire. And I said, really? I met your partner last night at dinner and he could not believe it. His eyes got really big. He was like, no way. That's that's incredible. And, you know, I told him that I'm associated with a a VC fund that invests in, in Israeli businesses. And I already passed his information on to them. And that's all he wanted to talk about. You know, he didn't want to talk about fighting. He didn't want to talk about the war. He just wanted to talk about what he normally does in his life. And I talked to another guy and I said, What are you doing? He said, Oh, I specialize in finding like undermarket real estate deals. And I was like, Funny thing, that's my business too. You know, so we talked real estate. You're talking these guys are in full military gear, you know, I don't know, 70 pounds of gear on them, their gun. And they just, they're normal people with families and businesses. And, and one realization I had, you know, was just, you know, how an army like this in a country this small is, it's not all professional soldiers or primar- primarily professional soldiers. It's primarily people who are professionals in other fields who, because of their army service that they've done, have this expertise and can do this when called upon. But what are they looking forward to? getting back to their family for Shabbat, you know, going back home and playing with their kids. And that was a really big moment as well, because I'm looking at all these men and realizing that chances are some of them, God forbid, will not have that chance to return, will not have the chance to build the businesses that they're trying to build now. Um, And I hope that they do all return. And I don't know what, the fatality rates are in their particular unit, but that, that was a really tough moment for me. And I had to keep myself from crying because I didn't want, you know, them to see that and to, you know, to, to feel that because for some, you know, they have to put it out of their minds to go do this every day. And, and, uh, they're able to do that.
0: Tell me about the barbecue that, uh, y'all did. Yeah. So, uh, the barbecue. I was Um, hungry when we talked about sandwiches, but now I'm like famished. Yeah,
1: that's right. (laughs) So we were initially supposed to put on a barbecue for 350 soldiers. But for some reason, that that group of soldiers had to go. I'm not sure if they had to go fight or what happened. So it ended up being a bigger army base with 700 soldiers and a very generous man um from detroit had donated the seven thousand dollars it cost to feed the smaller group of soldiers so then we had to raise money again on the bus to see who was going to pitch in to feed the rest of the soldiers which of course we did easily because we were all very happy to do this um so we went down to a base very close to gaza you know my wife can see my location on her phone and so she (laughs) sent me a screenshot she was like, you're really close to Gaza. You told me we're going to be there. I was like, look, I don't know. I'm, the bus driver points the bus in a direction, and then I get off and on when he tells me to. You know, what can I say? And uh, they asked us not to film uh, in this, with you know, outside of the Army base. We were allowed to film in it, and they had these giant walls that they had put up um, around it. And, and this is a makeshift
0: in. base. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is not a base that would normally be there. Um, and you walk in and there are just hundreds of soldiers of all ages, shapes, sizes, men and women, you know, sitting around, looking at their phones, smoking, drinking, talking, eating. And you just kind of go in there and you just start talking to people. And again, you know, the first guy I started talking to, Uh, His English wasn't great. I said, what do you do? He's a Kolel guy and uh, he's in military intelligence. And um, here he is, you know, and we talked, we try, I tried to talk Torah with him a little bit, but his English wasn't great. And he's, you know, many levels above what I'm sure what I would be able to understand anyway. He was studying Baba Basra.
0: That's his, his uh, book that he likes. Um, and hey, you uh, take him on. You I guess. Defend, defend the honor of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll
1: go back. I'll, I'll track them down after studying for a couple of years and, and see what I can do. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to other people who run businesses. I talked to one guy who is in Army engineering. Um, And he he said that he had really wanted to move to the United States. um, But that actually, since this had happened, now he wants to stay. Um, And I I had a realization on this base, which is that, you know, the IDF is the most moral army in the world, probably the most moral army in the history of combat. Um, And several people told me, Often to the detriment of soldiers, you know, they will, they will put their own soldiers in harm's way and at risk, uh, to, to be as moral as they are and to be as careful to avoid civilian casualties as they are. Which, in my opinion, is a mistake. Yes. I and I think, I think many of the soldiers felt that way as well. Um, but it is also, Unquestionably, the most educated army in the history of warfare. The level of education that the average person has, and you know, the the regular troops are pretty young. They haven't been to college yet often. Um, but they're, you know, the education that they get in schools in Israel is excellent. This was not, you know, and again, I'm sure this happens, but by and large, the, dignity and respectfulness of the troops. You know, look, I don't know that much about the military. I wasn't in the military in the United States either. Most of what I know for from it is about is from movies. Um, but this army does not behave in the way that you see armies behave in American war films. You know, they're very dignified. They think, they talk, they talk a lot about politics. A lot of the guys on that base, you know, wanted to engage in discussions about you know, the political reasons that they were in this position, they found themselves in. Um, You know, they wanted to ask me about what I thought was going on in the United States and the college campuses and academia and around the world with the, you know, pro-Palestinian marches. They wanted to know about the march in Washington. You know, these were heady conversations for soldiers who were going into battle. And, um, you know, look, it could have been at a kiddish you know i that that's how you feel talking to these soldiers like these are just the same conversations and the same types of people that you'll talk to in shul for for Kiddush. and uh you know you this feels like family feels like home it's it's just you know it's an instantaneous connection and you know another thing we we you're handing out you know these letters uh and pictures that you that we brought from kids And it seems silly, you know, like they're going to battle. You're going to give them a, it makes a difference. Like it, 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 again, it gives them incredible physic and it gives them strength and they feel, they, they realize that we are all thinking about them and caring about them wherever we are in the world and that we're watching them and that we're, we're praying for them, you know, and the praying, you know, like that, is important for them. Even the ones that are, you know, more secular to know that we're out here praying for them was so important for them. Um, Yeah. And that, that was a theme that came up a lot too, is, is they are seeing what's happening in the news. They're seeing the anti-Semitism that's out there and they feel, they do feel um, embattled and they feel lonely and they feel um, abandoned in a lot of ways. And uh, it's it's not it's not good for their morale. So to go there and to to let them know, like, look, you know, I would tell them nobody talks about anything else. The entire Jewish community can only think about what you are going through right now. And I'm one person, but I'm here as a representative of the entire 80,000 person Jewish community of Denver. And uh, and I can assure you that they are all with you and care about you and more people would have come and more people will come. Um, and I, and I think that's actually really after
0: this podcast, after this podcast, I was like, I'm going,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast, go, please go. Um, You know, we can put you in touch with people at AISH or you can put together your own trip, but there, there's no reason for you not to go. It's, it's, it, it's a very important thing to do right now.
0: Let me ask you a personal question. You get a, a sense that maybe you belong there. Like, I, I've been having this feeling the last couple of weeks. You know, we lived in Israel for five years after uh, we got married, and my three older children were born in Jerusalem, but we moved to Houston. And I did get a, a, a growing sense, just personally, uh, a feeling that, like, I really don't belong here. I belong in Israel. Did you get a similar sense or maybe other people on the trip get a sense that even though, you know, we're from Denver or we're from Toronto, wherever we are, we really, our hearts are here, but really we should be living here as well.
1: I mean, yes, but I'll give the disclaimer that I've always felt that. <laughs> but this definitely put a fine point on it. And um you know, I became very determined to find a way to buy some real estate in Israel. Um, and, you know, I don't know if I will move there right now. I don't think my wife or kids want to move there, um, right now, but, um, someday I would like to, I would like to have a place there. You know, I think my boys are are interested in, in going there after high school, either to yeshiva or to work or, um, Whatever the case might be to go to college. Um, and, uh, I, I'm very focused on that right now on finding a way to, to, to buy real estate there. And I'll mention, you know, I'm bearing the lead a little bit, but we did get to hear from Rabbi Beryl Wine on Shabbat. And he said, you know, now's the time if you're going to buy real estate in Israel, do it now. And he also said, you know, even if you come here and just sit on a park bench, you're making a statement which I thought was amazing. The legend. Amazing. The legend. I mean, he he was a legend. Um, all right, I'll, I'll continue on with a few more things that, that we did. Um, we went to Gush Etzion. I'd never been to the West Bank before. This is a cluster of, of settlements kind of on the border of the West Bank. And um, one of the kibbutzes, uh, we were on a kibbutz there uh, where we heard from two soldiers, who had been first responders to the October 7th attacks. And these were among the stories that you hear about, you know, guys who were not sold there. You know, they weren't soldiers at the time. They were just civilians who had been soldiers who were, you know, in reserves, but not currently active in reserves, who heard what happened, grabbed their gun, drove down, And in one case, a guy called all the members of his unit, and they all met up down there, and they just started fighting. And, uh, again, more harrowing stories of what they saw. Driving past all of the bomb shelters that are lined on the the road going down there, where um, people had hidden, and as the terrorists went by, just would throw grenades into these shelters. Um, And one of the men told us, you know, It was 40 hours. He fought for 40 hours, uh, just nonstop, no food, no sleep, just him and his unit, just trying to penetrate further and further and um, kill as many enemies as they could. And uh, he was injured. He was shot. So he came in and he was uh, on crutches. Um, And uh, yeah, again, just total heroism, total selflessness. Um, One of them had left his wife and kid to go down there and do this. Um, And, uh, you know, life changing experiences for them. Just picked up a gun and, and went down and fought, not knowing what they were going into, kind of realizing moment by moment the scale of what was happening. But even then, I think, you know, they were somewhat in shock, and you're just fighting. And um, that's all you can think about. You're just, you know, just just the next moment in front of you. And then you kind of piece it together later, what was actually happening. But, you know, God knows how many lives they saved. Um, You know, what they did to stem the tide and to keep the terrorists from penetrating further into Israel. Um, Total selflessness, total heroism. Um, and one of those young men, I, you know, he was probably, he really wore his, his, his anger on his sleeve more. Um, and I, I think, uh, again, it was a, a case where there had been some level of apathy amongst Israelis or some level of, Distraction or maybe not taking the enemy as seriously as maybe they should have uh but i I think that's it's fair to say that God willing it'll be another fifty years before you know and and hopefully never hopefully it'll never happen again, you know that that as a country and as a people, we've learned our lesson that you have to be ever vigilant and you can't let politics distract you. And you have to know the nature of the enemy, um, which is that they're not like us. You know, they're not looking for peace. They're not looking to live side by side.
0: One One of the flawed concepts that everyone's talking about is that they thought that if Hamas was in charge of Gaza and they had to run the sewage and the education and the communication and they're responsible for food and water, that would make them forget about their other mission or their stated mission. Which is the elimination of Israel, and the the slaughter really of anyone that gets in their way. Yeah, we have to take our enemies for their word when they say things like that. We don't just uh, uh, attribute it to uh, hyperbole or uh, some sort of exaggeration or embellishment.
1: Yeah, and and I remember in the second Intifada, you know, the disillusionment of the Israeli left and those who had been hoping for peace you know, um, probably myself among them. You know, I'm not Israeli, but uh, uh, I've long been an observer of the peace process and of Israel and, and hoped for peace. Um, and I know that the Second Intifada did a lot to mute that sentiment. It seemed like it had been coming back a little bit in recent years, um, or at least there was a polarization in Israeli society where you had those who were even less keen on it before. But you know, a lot of those kibbutzniks down there were hoping that they could be the bridge, that because of their relationships with the Palestinians, that they could show that this was possible and they could be the bridge. And I have no doubt that among those Palestinians that they interacted with were some good people. But by and large, they, those people were just used cynically. And some of those people even became informers on the kibbutz, letting the terrorists know the layouts of the kibbutzes and, and their weak points. Um, and I and I think this is another event that is going to have a massive effect on the general approach of Israeli society to a- any kind of
0: lasting peace. Yeah, it, the the peace process is effectively dead uh, yes. because both, even both sides, even the the Arab Palestinian side, is less interested than they've ever been. And certainly, the Jews are the Jews, the Israelis are uh, justly um, very, 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 very dubious of the possibility of any progress on that front. Yeah, yeah, and it's a big topic of
1: conversation: what will happen when the war is over, or how will you know how will Israel approach Gaza? I don't think it's such a huge topic of conversation in Israel because they have you know their immediate needs. that they're thinking about, but it did come up from time to time. And I know there were a variety of opinions, uh, um, but I I certainly think that it's decades, you know, decades of of, of damage have been done by this. Um, You know, they meant both of those soldiers mentioned that, you know, a lot of Gazan civilians came through as well it wasn't just the terrorists that once the gates were open you know so called civilians flooded in and uh perpetrated brutality and violence and one of the guys said uh you know he was asked you know what he thought about this and why it happened and he said you know it's it's funny after now after 4000 years ask why you know there's just there's just evil in the world that's just the reality and um you just have to ex- kind of accept that and be realistic about it and do your best to protect yourself from it um and he was he was um he was an interesting guy he was a religious guy and uh you know his his perspective on that, his perspective on the idea of miracles happening in battle. And, you know, he, you know, he was kind of funny about that too. He said, well, look, you know, terrible things happen too. (laughs) You know, the same hand that, um, you know, protects you can also hurt you. Um, And he had a very philosophical outlook. Uh, But, you know, one thing is for certain is that his, He knew what his role was and his role was to protect himself, to protect his country and to protect the Jewish people. And that's exactly what he did at great personal expense. Um, We also um, got to meet with the troops that were stationed at Gush Etzion. They've turned a dining hall there into essentially barracks. And, you know, they talked about the West Bank, you know, in their opinion, the divide between Gaza and the West Bank is not what we are told it is um, in American media. You know, their West Bank, you know, they're maybe not officially Hamas, but oftentimes have the same attitudes towards Israel that they do in Gaza. Um, and they, these soldiers have to go in daily and um, foil potential terrorist attacks and terrorist plots. Um, there's some real fighting going on there. Um, and it's a
0: dangerous and difficult job as well. Yeah. Um, and the reason why they haven't had elections there since 2005, you know, the Mahmoud Abbas is on, they say, what, the uh, year 18 of his four-year term. Right. The reason why is because Hamas would win. Hamas would win. Yeah. Yep which they actually won the democratic elections in 07. Mm-hmm. Because when Israel pulled out unilaterally in 05 in Gaza, that is, uh, yep. it was the Palestinian authority. Yeah. And uh, then they had elections of Hamas. Won. Hamas would have, would have, would win today in, uh, in the West bank, in Judea and Samaria as well. So. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is, but the, uh, no the the party line solution of a two state solution right but the, that i think it's just it's naive and it's just not going to happen
1: yeah the idea that you could pull out of the west bank um it's absurd absurd it's absurd because it, it will be the same thing that happened in gaza which is that they'll spend all of their time energy and money um, building up their ability to murder Jews. They won't do anything else.
0: Yeah, and the distance between Gaza and the farthest penetration of terrorists on October 7th, that is much smaller than the distance between Kukaram and the West Bank and Tel Aviv. Yes. So it's, it's just not an option. It's not an option to allow these people, which are, again, effectively they're the same people. Yeah. Land, land for you cannot allow a yeah a, a Hamas stand in the, yes. in the West Bank in in Judean Samaria.
1: Yeah, I think land for peace is dead. Um, and I, I someone I read recently said, you know, it's 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 really land for war, um, and that's the mentality. You know that the Palestinians and their their leadership has is that, you know, give an inch, take a mile. Um, the more you give The more they assume that you're weak The more they're going to want to take So there will be there will be no land for peace I don't know what the solution is To Judea and Samaria Or Gaza for that matter um, But it certainly isn't Exchanging land for peace Or some kind of temporary tranquility um, And the Israelis know that You know they know that More than they ever have um, And so I think that they will, the the the, the likely, um, find some other way of 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 securing their their homeland and securing their their safety. I don't know what that is yet.
0: Otherwise, they have no reason to exist. Yes, and they should sure all be uh, booted from office and let people that can do that.
1: Uh, yeah, um... and you know that's another interesting aspect of this is to talk to these soldiers and and citizens the amount of pressure that I think they will apply to whatever government uh, they have after this. And that's yet to be seen as well. I think the general sentiment is that there is no way that even Bibi can thread this needle and survive this. Um, Though I think that they think that he will try and he will try by blaming other people for what happened. But I think
0: they Believe it's, it's a very fall. hard to imagine how anyone who was in power will survive the inquiry that's going to happen after this war. Very hard, yeah.
1: very hard to imagine that.
0: But again, that's a subject for another time, yeah.
1: Um, but you know, that's that's the feeling of the Israelis, uh, you know, and uh, we'll have to see what kind of who they elect after. Um, that evening. Uh we had we had another dinner at Aish and we heard from uh, a young man whose grandmother was on the trip, actually from Denver. And mm-hmm. he was is an American, he moved to Israel, he was in the army, he was a he's a Golani, you know, he's one of the elite fighting forces who fights in the north. Um he was a real character. I think he does he's a construction foreman in New York. And he was in the Dominican Republic vacationing when he heard and immediately got on a plane to come to Israel to, uh, you know, participate in the fighting effort. And he said the, the vibe on the plane, he said people barely talked. They were just everybody was going back to reserves and they were talking about, you know, what they might be encountering. He was saying it was really, really a powerful experience. And he got back. He suited up, he met his unit, and immediately he was on the battlefield, and bombs were dropping all around him, and he loved it. He loved every minute of it. He said it was great. (laughs) Um, He said a really incredible thing, which is that at one point in the battle, they were climbing a hill, and they started to dig trenches. And they were digging trenches in the scars of trenches that have been dug there in previous wars going back all the way to the uh, 48 war, I believe, where they were. Um, I could have that wrong. But just to think about the generations of Jewish soldiers who have risked their lives and fought and died protecting Israel and and Israeli citizens, um, you know, it was was a really powerful moment thinking about that. Um, And, you know, even going back uh, to biblical times, you know, this was the same land that you know ancient Jewish soldiers were, were fighting to protect. The same hills, the same valleys, the same cities. Um really incredible to to
0: hear that from someone who's doing that now. And um, hopefully we will witness the times of Messiah when these wars will come to an end because they're not over yet.
1: Amen. Amen. Um we asked him what he needed. He needed two drones. Drones was a big way for them to protect themselves. They could see the battlefield. They could see where the enemy was. It's very difficult, I guess, from where they're located to see that. So he needed $17,000. We raised it in the room. And uh, we'll be sending him drones uh, soon if they're not already on the way. Um, Very specific type of drone that he needed. Um, and so hopefully, we have contributed to saving the lives of him and his fellow soldiers. Um, and you know, there's a war happening in the north, there is a war with Lebanon. You know, you, re- you read about it in the newspaper, and it sounds like skirmishes, or it, it's a war, it's a real war. People are really, you know, soldiers are dying up there. Um, it's difficult, it's dangerous, it's scary. It's 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 the real thing. Um, so even though, you know, as you mentioned, you know, some of these other fronts were supposed to open up simultaneously and for whatever reason they didn't, there's still real fighting. And it's important for us to recognize that and, and make sure we're supporting those soldiers as well. Um, For Shabbat, we got to go to uh, Beit Knesset Hanasi, the Shul of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Um, which is, you know, just a modest shul in Jerusalem like so many others you'd see. Um, Rabbi Wine gave a fantastic sermon. Um, they had a little kiddish for us after. Uh, I had the potato kugel, which was very delicious. They didn't have enough. I was still so hungry. I asked the guy if he had more. He said he did not. I was so disappointed, but I had to share with everybody else. So that's what I did. Um and then we went up and and rabbi wine gave another talk which was i have to say a hair raising moment he is so brilliant everything he said was so spot on he knows exactly what is happening um uh, you know his talk kind of was about you know he said someone asked me what i think about the state of american jewry i won't go into quoting everything he said Um, I, I, I did everything I could to remember as much of it as possible. Um, and I started as soon as it was done, I talked to everybody. I said, whatever you remember, as soon as Shabbat is over, write it down. We need to reconstruct this talk because it was so incredible. Um, but you know, he's, he's 89 years old. He's a professional historian as well as a rabbi. His historical sense of, you know, his ability to put what's happening now in historical context, not only what's happening in Israel, but what's happening to American Jews, his understanding of what's happened in academia and how long it's been going on, what it will take to reverse that, whether or not we should be living in America or the United States, um, you know, just just brilliant, just, you know, totally contemporary understanding. Uh, you know, he made several references to things that are very topical. Um that you know you might be talking about now as a young person. Um, really remarkable guy, totally sharp, um, and and really a treasure. Uh and uh when I when I reconstruct his talk, I'll send it to you.
0: <laughs> part two, part two of our episodes. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um on Sunday we went to Har Herzl, which is the memorial for the fallen soldiers. Um again like Shura, just people who aren't on the battlefield, but who take their job with the utmost seriousness and realize the effect they have on the families of the fallen Um, and uh, incredibly uh, dignified people, um, conscientious people, um, really uh, another amazing and moving experience. And there, of course... You know, this is a difficult time for them. They interact with a lot of families of of fallen soldiers and have to comfort them and have to make sure that these families know that their their family members who died are going to be forever remembered. And it's really remarkable because they have a brick. If you've ever been there, it's kind of a spiral museum that, that you start from the bottom, you walk to the top. And, and there are other aspects to it. There's a cemetery, but the main part, you know, and, and, it, and it's constructed of bricks. And these bricks are only held together with their own weight. There's no cement or anything. And and each brick has a name of every person who has devi- died defending Israel since before the state was formed. from the first person they know who died. Um, To the most recent, the youngest was a nine year old kid who died in 1948. The first one, I think, I think it was from, like, maybe 1917. If I'm not mistaken, he was, he was defending one of the first communities built outside of um, the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, sadly, now, every day, they are adding another brick. And having another memorial service, or several usually. Um, After that, we visited the Knesset. Um, Really neat to be in that building with all its history. Uh, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to politicians and government. We did meet with Amir Ohana. Um, I didn't glean any new insights other than he is made sure to tell us that he's personally responsible for securing Israel's relationships with their supporters um you know uh but it was you know it was it was it was good to be in that building and you know there's a, there's a giant chagall uh tapestry which was really beautiful and it is it's a, it's a really nice building Um, I was much more sympathetic to all the other people, the non-politicians who work in that building and make sure that the wheels of government can turn, uh, you know, such as they do. And um, that was the end of my part of the trip. Uh, They did have another banquet at Aish that night, which I um, had to miss because I wanted to um, see members of my family who I hadn't yet got a chance to see I have some family that lives in Jerusalem. Um, this is my mother's first cousins. Uh, they they made Al- Aliyah in the seventies. Um, they, they, they live in Harnof, which is a religious neighborhood. They have a lot of kids and uh, lots of grandkids, many of whom are serving, um, including one of their sons who I met with later. Um, but they, you know, they talked about. You know, I think one of their daughters or granddaughters is um, in the unit that watches the screens, uh, the, of the cameras that that look at the border with Gaza. Um, they give this job to girls because boys aren't capable of looking at a screen for twelve hours without being distracted. So it's it's. I think it's an all female unit. Um. And from what I hear, uh, I I have heard that actually, you know, these these young women are very upset because they had been giving warnings that some that they had been seeing unusual activity. And their commanders, who are mostly men, were not listening to them or taking them seriously enough. Um, But one of my cousins is in that unit. uh, Or my second cousin's. Uh, or maybe even third cousins. If it's, I'm not sure if it was their daughter or their granddaughter. It must have been their granddaughter who, who's who's in that in that unit. Um, and you know they're very worried. You know they told me. You know uh, my 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 cousin told me she says a lot of Tehillim to make sure that her her grandson doesn't go to battle. And he said to her grandma, "You got to stop doing that. Like I I want to go. Don't pray so much for me because he keeps. They keep telling him that he's going to have to." you know, um, report for duty and then they call him at the last minute and say, never mind, you don't have to report. He said, like, Grandma, your your prayers are too effective. Stop saying it. <laughs> um and then I met with one of their sons, uh, my my cousin, who uh he was an F-16 pilot, which is kind of like royalty in 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 Israel. Um And he had to stop doing that uh, for reserve duties because it's very demanding. It takes like, it's like six months, a year of, of training to keep up with it. And he has a tech startup. He has a startup that uses AI and machine learning to um, increase the, the accuracy of, of, of actuarial data for insurance companies. Um, And so he's not able to fly, but, He is a reservist and he, uh, you know, I met him that night and he had to report for duty the next morning. He had just come from a previous shift. What he does is he communicates the needs of ground troops for air cover to the Air Force. So he speaks both languages. He speaks Army and he speaks Air Force. And then he has to make the decision of whether or not to provide the requested air cover based on how dangerous he feels it will be for the ground troops.
0: Very demanding. One of the one of the hallmarks of the the army in the last couple of years is, is that the this is what I remember hearing is that the ground troops can summon uh, an aerial uh, aerial attack on a, a building or someplace like that, some place that's giving them trouble. They can just call in the air force.
1: Yes, and he's the guy that they call. Um, Interesting. It's a tough job because you're making life and death. Uh, decisions. You have to make them quick, quickly. You have to weigh all sorts of factors. Um, And he has 12 hour long shifts. He says sometimes he can't get up to go pee or eat or anything. He's glued to his chair. Um, Very demanding, very stressful. Um, And again, uh, you know, all he wanted to talk about was his business. (laughs) You know, I wanted to hear about you know, his army life. And all he wanted to talk about was his startup, which he can't wait to get back to. And, you know, he told me about the, the um, measures that they take, you know, to, to account for his absence and, you know, who takes over when he's not there. He, he, I think is the, see the CEO, I think he's the CEO or the CFO. I can't remember his exact role, but you know, uh, he's one of the founders. It's very important to him. He's been working on it for a long time. And, um, you know, the way that they balance real life, right. I don't know what's more real life than going to war, but their regular lives with their lives as soldiers and as warriors is, it was really incredible to see that. I mean, it's just the way that they handle this dichotomy is, is really impressive. Um, and, uh, you know, his kids were asleep. He had just put his kids to sleep, so I didn't get to meet them. I mean, they were sleeping in the next room. His wife came back. She had been, you know, out to dinner with some friends for her birthday. Um, you know, he he he's uh, he explained to me, I asked him, you know, how he handles Torah study. He told me about his Torah study group that he has, that he hosts at his house every week. And, you know, they they do Gemara and, you know, just... It just- seems like they have such rich lives, unbelievably rich lives i mean they are they are human beings in the fullest sense of the word um families businesses warriors citizens i mean just just incredible people and i have just you know incredible respect for them
0: so blake summarize your trip for us and tell us your takeaways
1: my takeaways my takeaway is this I think it's in is it in Ezekiel where it says uh, be a light unto the nations or Isaiah Isaiah yeah Isaiah and I I've wondered what that means and as I've gotten older I've I've come to understand what that means as I've learned more Torah you know thank God through your um podcasts And uh, you know, you've been. I've learned a lot of Torah from you. Thank you so much for that. I listen to all of your podcasts, um, and you know, I started out listening to your history podcast, and from there, I found all the others. Um, And you really gateway drug. It's the gateway drug, and it certainly was for me. And so, as I've developed an understanding of what that means of of what Judaism and what Torah and what a Jewish lifestyle can offer to the world. Um, That on this trip came into such sharp focus for me. You know, from the Shura army base, where they prepare the bodies, to the attitudes of the warriors who go out and risk their lives, to the way that the community supports those soldiers um, by volunteering their time and the selflessness that everybody shows, you know, every aspect is a kiddush Hashem. Every aspect is modeling for the world how to be a mensch, how to be a human being. And when you see the mirror image of that, which is the enemy, and how the enemy behaved towards other human beings, how the enemy treats their own their own countrymen their own co-religionists you know the way that they put their own people in harm's way intentionally when you see that and those two ways of 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 looking at the world reflected against one another you just you really see what it means to be a light unto the nations and uh then to see the variety of people contributing to this from the secular to the religious from the left to the right all the ways of being religious you know I asked one of my taxi drivers if, if he was religious and he said no but but I know there's a God you know the Jewish people is we are a prism and God's light refracts through that prism and we're each a facet of that prism and i felt like that on the on this trip i felt like i had a direct role in allowing god's light to ref, to flood the world and you know to anybody listening to this you know again i would implore you to to be involved even if you can't go to israel if you if you can go they want you there they need you there it's important not only to be there but then to come back and share what you saw and tell other Jews and non-Jews what you've seen and how important it is. But if you can't go, anything that you do, whether it is praying or donating money or talking to people who are curious about what's going on, anything you do is is really important. Um, So... Yeah, that's what I learned. That's that's what was brought home to me on this trip and it was was life changing.
0: Blake, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing the incredible, incredible stories and experiences of your trip. Even though we're far away, our hearts are there and now we get a, a real sense of what things are actually like there on the ground. Uh, we went from all the different elements, you know, the 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 soldiers that you met, civilians that you met. The volunteer work that you did and the takeaways that you drew, it, it really brought us there to a certain extent, and we appreciate that. And this is your first appearance of the podcast. Please, God, you'll come back. Once you get the bug, you get the taste, you're like, ah, I can't stop. <laughs> so uh, amazing. Thank you, has- Rabbi.
1: Thank you for everything you do. Torch is awesome. You're awesome.
0: and well, Thank you. And hopefully, we'll hear good news from our brethren in uh, the land of Israel and the soldiers and the hostages. We hope to only hear good news from them. And again, Yasher Koach for going, because you said you represented a de- you represented every- I think you represented also the podcast, because you were a podcast listener there. Absolutely, and, uh, and we appreciate that. And uh, again, our our nations at war, and we may feel away from that here in the united states but it's important to 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 empathize to sympathize with our brothers and sisters and i will join your call if someone can go they should go and everyone of us should do what we can to help advance the efforts thank you so much blake cone for joining us and uh i'm looking forward to our next opportunity thank you